0: Welcome to the Soapbox Redemption podcast, The Big Questions served with Swagger. I'm Andrew, and I'll be your host as we embark on this journey together. This episode features a conversation with Randall Rouser. Randall is an author, theologian, and professor of historical theology. He's written a bunch of books, two of which in point-counterpoint fashion with atheist co-authors, which was a definite source of inspiration for my and Adam's book, Meta. Besides giving our book a nice blurb, Randall hosted Adam and I on his podcast at his home in Edmonton. We also had a fantastic pub dialogue with a small group the evening prior, where we dove into all sorts of fun philosophical and theological debate. In this podcast, Randall and I discussed his background and academic interests, and got into some of the big questions like why is there something rather than nothing? Morality, consciousness, free will, and the nature of abstract objects. We also talked about the importance of epistemological humility as we wrestle with these issues. Beyond the theist and atheist divide, we then dove into some controversial topics within Christianity, such as divine simplicity and nature of hell. Randall is incredibly intelligent, all the while humble, and did a very nice job serving up some of the complex topics in an accessible way. Though the conversation goes deep and far out at times, I thought Randall gave an excellent tour of philosophical theology. So please, enjoy the conversation between yours truly and Randall Rouser. Randall, welcome to the podcast. Hey,
1: good to be with you, Andrew.
0: Yeah, the tables have turned. Now you as a guest on my podcast, is it already cold in Edmonton or are there still some traces of, uh, of summer left?
1: <laughs> yeah. So Edmonton, for, for those of your listeners who don't know, is, uh, I don't know, probably the 55th latitude, 54, 55. So it would be, um, let's say, equivalent to probably Scotland if you're in the UK, But we're in the middle of this giant landmass, North America on the prairies. So, yeah, it gets cold. Uh, We didn't actually have much of a summer this year. It was uh, low 70s or even high 60s a lot of days. It was quite cool. Wow. Um, So, but I did visit family in Colorado. We had some family in Colorado this summer. So we got a dose of heat down there because they had a hot one.
0: Nice. Yeah, for the um, for the listeners, Randall was gracious enough to host Adam and I not only on his podcast but at his home in Edmonton uh, during my and Adam's book tour last year. So um, excited to have Randall on uh, Soapbox Redemption podcast. So quick bio on Randall: uh, Randall is a systematic and analytic theologian, associate professor of historical theology at Taylor Seminary in Edmonton and author of several books, including What's So Confusing About Grace, and An Atheist and a Christian Walk Into a Bar. My Project Meta was definitely influenced and inspired by Randall's books, turned live events with Justin Schreiber and John Loftus. So I thought maybe we'll start there, Randall. Um, before that, though, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you developed an affinity for theology and philosophy and you know, came to it as a profession.
1: Yeah, sure. Let's see. Um, I began in 1992, uh, 93, going to Trinity Western University, an undergraduate liberal arts university in Vancouver, Canada, and studying English and religious studies. Uh, kind of increasingly got interested in theology along that journey. So then I went and did a master's degree in Regent College in Vancouver in uh, the late 90s, and really continued to focus in on theology, also had a developing interest at that time in apologetics. Uh, during my undergraduate, William and Craig came out and visited our class back in 94. And uh, so we became big Bill Craig fans. We used to go to the library on Friday nights and get out Bill Craig debate videos and get pizza and Coke and, and watch Craig debate atheists on our TV. And that was our sort of our idea of fun. <laughs> and I never never kind of got over that, so I've uh, went on and did a PhD in England in theology. But I've always had a love for apologetics, for theology, for philosophy, and the liberal arts more
0: generally. Cool. So your your projects with um, with Justin and John, I mean, how, can you tell us how those initiated?
1: Yeah. So uh, I wrote a book with John Loftus. So he's a pretty well known atheist, kind of, I'd say, of the new atheist sort, so tends to have a little bit of a disparaging view of of Christians as being people whose faith needs to be debunked, and so his website is actually called Debunking Christianity. He had published a pretty popular book on why I became an atheist, was the title, and I got to know him through his blog, and eventually through his book, we started sparring a lot, and eventually we wrote a book together. Now, he was living in Indiana, where he's from, I'm up in Canada, but we were writing back and forth, did 20 short debates. And this book called God or Godless was published by Baker back in 2013. And John came up here and actually, and we did three live debates as well. Uh, one of them is available actually on YouTube. So that was an interesting experience. Um, it was, I, I think that was a really good book that, that we did. Um, I think that it does become difficult when uh, the person you're interacting with has a rather condescending view of your belief system. And John did have that and does have that for Christians. Right. And I, I'm rather different. I'm of the sort that I think in, atheism can can be an intellectually respectable position. It's not one I hold, but there are people I respect who I think are intelligent and thoughtful and they have taken that position. And I try to reason with them. And I think Christianity is certainly... Uh, a, a reasonable position taken I would argue it is a superior one but I think that we can have respect on all sides so so that was sort of anyway the background of, of that relationship and with Justin Schieber he was part of a, a podcast at one time called Reasonable Doubts so I began interacting with them online there and then same kind of thing we were sparring and then we liked each other uh, and we ended up writing this book for Prometheus Books an atheist and a Christian walking into a bar and we did a short book tour and. 2016 to promote that book in Alberta and in Arizona. And that was a lot of fun. And Justin Sheber is a little different than John in that he does think Christianity is an intellectually robust and respectable position. So that, that was in some respects, I think more of a productive exchange that I had with Justin because we did respect each other's positions.
0: Yeah. I, um, similar spirit there with, with Adam and our project meta, as you know, Adam and I are friends and it, it it's, you know, when you're, when you're friends with your sparring partner, you you tend to care about the jab yeah, <laughs> a, a little bit more. And, um, and then also the view in general and just, you know, taking it seriously and, and this, this idea of epistemological humility that both Adam and I are big on, we tend to be passionate about our views, but respectful. So I, I you know, I can definitely see that. Um, well, then maybe you know, let's just jump into some of the you know fun metaphysics, and, and maybe in in the in the spirit of of the projects you did with with these uh, with these gentlemen, um, let's talk about why is there something rather than nothing um, in your dialogues with 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 these two with your your co-authors and their and your debates. You know, what are their positions um, and and what issues do you have with that?
1: Yeah, that's a a great question. Like The question, why is there something rather than nothing? It's one of those most fundamental questions that sort of define the spirit of philosophy because they're the kinds of questions that you wouldn't maybe think to ask in your daily life, but on those moments when you're sitting in front of the fireplace, it's flickering on a on a winter's night, and you're just reflecting about the biggest, deepest questions. That might be a question that comes to mind. And now, when it comes to John and I, uh, the the cosmo that brings us into the cosmological argument, or the, in other words, the argument of whether God is the best explanation for the cosmos or everything that exists. Um, and so, we touched on that argument, uh, John and I, in God or Godless. And I think that that our interaction can actually be. Uh, It kind of echoes uh, another more famous debate, which was a debate between Frederick Copleston, uh, who was a Jesuit Christian philosopher, and Bertrand Russell, the great atheist philosopher. They had a famous radio debate on the BBC in the 1940s. And... uh, Koppelsten was pointing out that the universe uh, might not have existed. You know, it's a contingent thing. Now, contingent just means that it's not necessary. It doesn't explain itself. It might not have been there. Uh, just like everything else that we experience in the universe is contingent. You know, I'm contingent. You're contingent. Tree outside my window. It might not have existed. Uh, planet Earth might not have existed. The solar system might not have existed. Indeed, the universe itself might not have existed, and yet it does. So that raises the question, why does it exist? And Koppelstein argued that the best explanation for the universe is that there is a necessary agent that brought it about that the universe exists, and that's God. Uh, And so that's a a quick summary of a a cosmological argument. Now, uh, as an atheist, Russell's response was simply to say, no, the universe just exists, and that's all. And I think that that you could summarize uh, the standoff between John and myself along similar lines. I'm arguing that the intellectually most satisfactory account for why there's something rather than nothing is that God brought the universe into existence. God being, by definition, a necessary being in contrast to the universe, which is contingent. And Loftus, on the contrary, thinking it is sufficiently satisfactory to stop with the existence of the contingent universe itself and not posit some additional necessary being that brought it into existence.
0: Right, and 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 let's 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 expand that a little, Randall, on the idea of contingency and necessity, um, and the and the whole brute fact response. I found that in my conversations with Adam and and just and many others, there's either a disdain for the question, there's either a reframing of the question, or ignoring the question entirely. Um, or I've seen some um, brave enough, and even I've, when I've pressed Adam on this. Is okay, fine. I think the first cause and the cosmological argument is valid, but let's not. Let it's not God. It, it, let it's naturalistic. Um, is that brave, or is that actually? Do you think a, a fatal error?
1: There's an interesting question here. The question is how you do you define God. So uh, what I like to do with my students is I give them a definition of. The divine, because the divine just is God, right? Whatever God is, that's divine. I give them a definition of the divine, which comes from a philosopher named Roy Kluser. And Roy Kluser says that the divine is that in a belief system which is unconditionally and non dependently real. So, in other words, whatever your worldview, your way of understanding reality is, when you get to the point of your understanding of reality that you can't go any further, that this aspect of reality is fundamentally real it's the end of explanation it's not dependent on anything else in your belief system that is functionally the divine thing in your belief system so when it was frederick coppelston the jesuit for him god is the divine you know this personal agent that brought the universe into existence when it came to bertrand russell who just said the universe just exists and that's all or carl sagan famously saying in the pbs series cosmos that the cosmos is all there is was or ever will be those are statements that elevate the cosmos to being the divine in right. the belief systems. So I would want to say, yeah, you know, naturalists do appeal to a concept of the divine in their belief system. It's not a personal one. It ultimately elevates the universe or some natural thing to be in the end of explanation. The question is, is that the most satisfactory explanation? I don't think so.
0: Right. Right. Cause I mean, basically in, in, in that line of reasoning, Folks that bite the bullet and say, "Okay, I buy the contingency necessity separation and the idea of a first cause." I, I, I just think it's the universe itself is an interesting, you know, kind of bullet to bite in in a traditional naturalistic framework. Yeah,
1: um, there are now. There are two ways you could cash it out at that point. You could say either, "Well, the universe is necessary in some way," and of course, the challenge is that. We start off identifying necessity and contingency in things with respect to our what are philosophers call modal intuitions. That's where you have to start. So, uh, for example, the number two. If, if 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 number the number two is a real thing, uh, uh, that it just exists as a Platonic reality, an abstract object, then it doesn't depend on anything to exist. It's just a necessary thing. But I'm not necessary necessary. It's pretty clear. And as I argued earlier, I think the intuitions are very strong of the universe is contingent. So, uh, if if you follow that through and you've made the universe absolute, what you end up saying is, as you said, the universe well then it's just a brute fact, which means there is no explanation at all as to why it exists. And that's not, to my mind, very satisfactory at all. The other alternative is to say, well, the universe is necessary in some way, and then again you've backed up into the metaphysics of divinity. So. Um, I think the, the naturalist has a challenge there to with those solutions. There is one other possibility that sometimes is proposed, and that's the idea of an infinite regress, right? That you can, while the universe came about because of some prior state of being, some other earlier universe or some earlier mysterious cause, and that perhaps also had some earlier cause, and you can just go back for infinity. And I would just say generally the philosophical consensus has been that infinite regresses don't really explain anything. So just to give a quick illustration of that, it's kind of, think, think about a train. You know, when, when you see, you just see the, the part of the train, let's say you see it midway through moving past you, you automatically assume there has to be a locomotive at the beginning pulling it. And if the person said, no, there's just an infinity of, of uh, boxcars going forward forever, and that's what's moving the train. Well, that doesn't make sense, right? There has to be uh, an engine pulling the train. And by the same token, I think you have to have a necessary cause, something that starts it off. You can't just have an infinite regress of uh, boxcars. And let me just say that, I, by the way, I got that illustration from my friend Trent or, the good Catholic apologist. I hmm. cite my sources.
0: Yeah, um, that's interesting that the kind of Aristotelian, Thomistic idea of, okay, let's say we are a multi, there is a multiverse. What caused that? Not necessarily temporally, ontologically right? So that, to me, that's interesting too, that that argument ultimately fails into what's the cause of the multiverse, right?
1: Yeah, like yeah, I ha- uh, you're right to, to mention the multiverse is very popular today, especially when it comes into the specific issue of fine-tuning, which is a little bit of a different topic than, than uh, the cosmological question itself. But you're right that if you posit uh, an, inf- an infinity or a nearly infinitely large set or something of different alternative universes that all exist, that just raises the question uh, untold numbers of times as to, well, why does that exist? So then the initial right. question we had, why is there something rather than nothing? When you consider that against the backdrop of a, of a multiverse, it's just even more astounding.
0: Right. Um, and, and that's interesting to me, Randall, this idea of, of, being and goodness itself. And then usually, you know, Aquinas, as he does, it says, and we call this God. And it's interesting to me, like, like you do with your students to lay out metaphysical concepts to help define what we even mean by God. And, and that actually goes into the, to me, the idea when you talk about being and goodness itself, and you talk about things like morality and consciousness and free will. Um, so what, you know, what were your, um, Co authors' views on really moral ontology, you know, moral capability and and agency, because this can go a lot of ways within my conversations with naturalists.
1: Yeah, Uh, morality is an interesting one, of course. Um, And personally, I I find moral arguments for God's existence, um, or conversely, moral arguments against naturalism or particular reductive versions of naturalism, I find those to be among the most satisfactory arguments. Uh, So John this when I debated him in, in God or Godless, his response to the moral question was essentially, as I understood him to, and I do remember this this exchange, that he would, he would appeal to a social contract theory. He gives this illustration of a bunch of people that are stuck in a house and they can never get out of the house and they just have to learn to get along for the overall good and the flourishing of each individual. And so, it kind of goes back to this, this, the myth of a social contract that individuals build a society because they agree it's in the collective interests of all to look out for the interests of all and to follow the golden rule and so on. But ultimately, one of the problems with that account is it reduces morality to a mere pragmatic move. Mm-hmm. It's not that there's anything intrinsically right about um, treating others as you want to be treated, But rather, that is simply a pragmatic judgment that one makes in order to maximize one's individual flourishing within a collective society. And I think that that's a a very unsatisfactory account of morality.
0: Right. And and is that, you know, it's interesting, you mentioned uh, William Lane Craig. I, I remember in a debate I think he had with Sam Harris at Notre Dame where he said, well, my opponent continues to confuse the idea of moral epistemology versus moral ontology? And can we even get epistemology off the ground if there is no actual moral law, right? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think that there are, uh, that's a good segue to to distinguish that there are several different kinds of moral arguments. So, uh, I mean, sometimes people just think the moral argument is that you know, that objective good exists, but there's actually more going on here. So one argument could be that the existence of good and evil is best explained with respect to a universe that has a a God behind it. Another one would be that the existence of moral obligation is best explained by the existence of God, because moral obligation is different than moral value. Moral value is good and evil. Moral obligation is right and wrong, or what I ought to do and what I ought not to do. And many people have noted that the concept of obligation itself seems to be rooted in the existence of agency. Now I'm obliged to do something because of some relationship to someone else. And I think reductive explanations for moral obligation are not satisfactory that you need to go beyond, as I just suggested with John Loftus, beyond your pragmatic obligation to to the social contract. So I think that there's an argument certainly for God in terms of moral obligation. Uh, But then, as you said, moral epistemology is yet another argument. And so this is the argument that without God, uh, we have really a a low reason and perhaps no reason at all, or no good reason to trust that our moral faculties correctly perceive right and wrong because our moral faculties were selected to be adaptive to survival rather than to gain true beliefs about the nature of good and evil and right and wrong or, and more, and uh, yes, good and evil and right and wrong. And so with that argument, Um, It could be that there is good and evil, but you couldn't know it. Uh, You couldn't have justified belief in it if naturalism is true, because all you could know is that my beliefs are adaptive to the environment, not that they're giving me true beliefs about the nature of good and evil. I think the best explanation for that moral knowledge that we have is God.
0: Right. And it's interesting to me, um, the... Pragmatic kind of response, right, Randall? With just evolutionary psychology, and just listen, we survived. There, you know, there there was a fitness value, and there was also cooperation. So that's just natural. That's moral. That that to me is actually kind of a naturalistic fallacy when you're asking an ontological question, right? Uh, uh, do you see that too?
1: Yeah. So that's a that's a great point. Uh, naturalistic fallacy here being a move from what is to what ought to be. And actually, you mentioned the the debate between Sam Harris and Bill Craig. And I think one of the points Bill Craig made is that Sam Harris makes this fundamental mistake because Sam Harris is trying to move from a particular understanding about biological flourishing, like what it means for a human organism, for example, to survive over a long period of time and trying to map morality onto the flourishing of that physical organism. And of course, the reality is that those two things don't often match up. And just to give you a simple example of that, uh, uh, well, for example, let's say that a child uh, is is drowning in in a river and a man jumps in to save the child. The man certainly does the morally noble and good thing, even though it makes it much more likely that his body will not flourish and perhaps he will drown. But the point being that, good and evil and right and wrong simply cannot be mapped off of the organism's biological flourishing. So there is often a fundamental is ought fallacy here and a naturalistic fallacy that is being committed. When we try to move from uh, something like biological flourishing to moral value, they're just independent kingdoms.
0: Right. Right. And to me, there's something um, inherently beautiful about a, you know, a virtue based theory that you can say, um, you know, the grounding of my beliefs is, is, you know, there's certainly something important to moral calculus of how many people will I save, but, you know, to save the least of these and that a, you know, to be a leader is to be a servant. How do you actually measure that in utilitarian calculus? It's somewhat counterintuitive, right? <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, the irony is, uh, for example, if, if there's there is some truth in utilitarian reasoning, right? Like the greatest good for the greatest number, that, that's a, a, sometimes a good guide for moral action. Uh, for example, if you are doing budgets for uh, healthcare in a government, you often, you want to uh, budget in terms of seeking the greatest good for the greatest number. But we don't go through life always following that mandate. So, you know, if there are eight, Eight, uh, well, th- this is like the lifeboat game. Do you remember the lifeboat mm-hmm. game? So, so uh, in this old ethical game, you're, you're supposed to be a good utilitarian, but where you're in a lifeboat and there's only room for five people, but there's six people in the lifeboat. And so it includes a sick baby, an old,
0: mm-hmm. an old man,
1: uh, a young professor, uh, a fashion model or whatever. And you have to decide who gets thrown overboard. And you have to do like utilitarian by asking, well, which one of these lives – is, is the least valuable in terms of the greatest good for the greatest number, and that's the one that you go over. The irony is when you begin to follow that kind of reasoning consistently through life, you end up looking less and less, less, and less like a moral person, right? You begin to look more and more like a, a kind of frightening kind of person who makes these bloodless calculations. So while there is undoubtedly value in the utilitarian framework, pra- practically in some contexts, if you follow it and try to make it a sweeping, overarching view of morality, it often can lead to some pretty frightful conclusions.
0: Right. And I, you know, Adam and I sparred, as you know, on, um, you know, trolley games and all sorts of issues as, as he's a good consequentialist. And so I would kind of follow those to some abhorrent ends and say without a virtue theory or without a, a grounding in, in, in something besides just, you know, utility um, there, there, there has to be something else to say. It's, it's, it's moral or good, and you know what's interesting, Randall. Um, to me, this all, this all hangs on: can we even make free decisions? I mean, to me, that is the ultimate bedrock of morality: is are we even consciously free creatures? Do, do you agree with that, or is that do you think that's missed in these debates?
1: Well, I definitely think free will is an important concept. Uh, I would want to distinguish between compatibilist and incompatibilist accounts of free will. So a compatibilist being of the view that free will is consistent with determination and an incompatibilist saying it's not consistent with determination. Uh, so that in other words, an incompatibilist would say, if I am determined by some something external to myself as a deciding agent, then I'm not free the compatibilist says, well, no, you can still be free even under those circumstances. And I think that 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 is a perennial debate in philosophy. Uh, you also see it within Christianity. So Calvinists and Arminians classically disagree about this. So mm. Calvinists are determinists uh, and compatibilists, most of them are anyway. So they believe you can be determined and yet free. And Arminians say, no, I have to be, I cannot be determined if I'm to be free. The, the challenge I think for naturalism is it, I'm, I'm doubtful that he can even secure a compatibilist account of free will uh, because I'm not even sure that it can satisfy an adequate account of agency itself or rationality. And if you can't get those, it's pretty tough to, to get free will, even of a determined sort.
0: Yeah. And, and let me ask you to stay with Sam Harris, for example, because, you know, it's really interesting in um, in his moral theory. Um, you know, it, it, he claims rather. Um, assertively that you can have objective moral value um, and duties in a naturalistic view. And then he wrote a book that there's no free will. And, and so I find that very interesting. Um, <laughs> what, what is objective moral value if I don't have moral capability is something I'm asking myself. Do you find that those two combinations uh, refuting, Randall? Yeah, I,
1: I do think that there's a fundamental incompatibility there. Uh, another good example of, of that kind of tension is when you have someone like Richard uh, or Richard Dawkins, who would uh, argue on the one hand against something like biblical atrocities, right? In, in the, the God Delusion, he famously talked with great moral indignation about the God of the Bible as this capricious, malevolent, narcissistic, genocidal, capricious bully. Bible. Yeah. So this long description... And yet elsewhere in his writings, for example, in A uh, River Out of Eden, I believe, and I'm forgetting which is the specific book with this quote, but where he talks about how nature is not good or evil, it's just pitilessly indifferent. And, uh, and that morality itself, we're just survival machines for our DNA. There is no good or evil within this universe. So there's this fundamental incongruity there in people like Dawkins or Harris, that they have these deep moral impulses And yet, as you're saying with Harris, they undermine them uh, with their denial of free will. And with Dawkins, he undermines it uh, by saying, but this universe itself is not a universe of good and evil. So I think that there's a deep cognitive dissonance in their perspectives at that point.
0: Yeah, I, I like to frame it, Randall, as the metaphysical web, because when you talk about morality, consciousness and free will, to me, they're very related. And for me to pick and choose which one I'm willing to bite the bullet on if I'm a skeptic, is, is just really problematic. I don't know how I would do that. I actually really respect Alex Rosenberg's writings, The Mad Dog Naturalist, that just denies all of them and, and accuses Sam Harris and others of cherry picking in a very puritanical way that they're just unwilling to give up um, you know, morality. And I, I find that very interesting. And, and I think some that just say, hey, let's, let's just call a spade a spade. Let's be true skeptics. Um, And so do you find that refreshing, a bite-the-bullet skepticism?
1: Well, I think you can go in two different directions, and I think that that is definitely one of the two directions, which in, in one sense I do respect, as you're saying, because it does express a certain rigorous consistency and austerity that says there just isn't room in a consistent naturalistic worldview for these kinds of things such as morality, personal identity through time, perhaps, free will and so on. So we're just going to give up on them. The other direction that one can go, and I also have respect for this direction. Some uh, some thinkers I, I quite respect have taken this view, is to, in a sense, inch toward theism by developing a metaphysical framework of the divine, which again, as I define is that which is unconditionally, non-dependently real, which begins to allow some of these things. So, for example, when someone like Eric Wielenberg says that, uh, well, you know, perhaps there is this objective good out there, a platonic good, and we can gain knowledge of it. And so it just exists independent of any material universe. Uh, So he rejects naturalism as it's conventionally defined, but he recognizes this good and he's still an atheist. I think I can respect that. Or or Ronald Dworkin, uh, a great philosopher who his last book was was called Religion Without God, where he's arguing in the same way that we need to begin with those things that we, we believe we know with the most certainty, which is just kind of things you're describing, you know, morality and free will and purpose and, and so on. And then adopt the degree of, of metaphysics that we need to explain them. Now, the thing is that if you take that second view and you, you begin to take the richer metaphysical view to explain these realities, you are inevitably inching toward a view that looks more and more like conventional theism. And that's why I like that view uh, in, in a sense rather than Rosenberg's because it it begins to move a person stepwise closer to my position and I would just want to keep greasing the rails at that point and say now just keep going come on over just <laughs> see that the ultimate non-dependently and real thing is itself a person an agent that we can have a relationship with and then you're all the way to the theism.
0: Right. I, I call it naturalism 2.0, Randall. And I actually see that as a growing area, um, you know, where, where folks want to have moral capability, agency, free will, moral ontology. And it's, and it's usually put, um, you know, in some, somewhat of a platonic sense, actually in my, and Adam's events, um, you know, I think one of our moderators, actually Massimo, uh, asked Adam, are you, are you a platonist? Um, just in your, I'm listening to your theories and, uh, and, and I, you know, I kind of wrap it into this naturalism 2.0 where it's, you know, it's a humanism. It's, it, 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 it espouses, uh, you know, an objective good. It, it, it wants to, um, elevate, um, moral capability and agency. Um, it just doesn't quite know how to do it without, what did I call it? Being a spooky naturalism. And that's what's an interesting sort of back and forth that I've seen in the naturalistic community lately.
1: Yeah, yeah. it actually reminds me of, and I think that was very well said, it reminds me of um, the old story of the Invisible Gardener. Uh, so that was a, a little parable that was originally told by a fellow named John Wisdom. And then in 1952, Anthony Flew wrote it up into a little essay that appeared in a very influential volume called New Essays in Philosophical Theology, published by Alistair McIntyre. And that was in the mid 50s, so around 70 years ago, that was a very influential book. And, and that story about uh, the invisible gardener, so to say, um, became very influential. So the story goes like this that there's a, a person that says there's this gardener that, that gardens in the woods. And so then people say, okay, well, why don't we uh, put up a fence to keep the gardener out of the woods? Uh, and so then they put up a fence. But then the person who believes in this gardener says, uh, no, actually, I had that wrong. So, so they, they begin, they say, there's a gardener. They, they, they garden the clearing in the woods. So they say, well, let's wait and see this gardener. So when the gardener never shows up, the person who believes in the gardener says, well, the gardener is invisible. And so then they say, okay, let's put up a fence. And then, well, the gardener can walk through fences. And this idea of the gardener keeps changing. And, and the idea that Anthony Flew and John Wisdom were making was a critique on theism that keeps changing that it keeps adapting to new data. And the irony is of that critique, that critique applies beautifully to what you call naturalism 2.0, mm-hmm. is that every time that there's an apparent defeater for it or an objection to it with respect to free will or moral agency or something else, that they just tweak their concept and keep developing their naturalism until they can explain everything. So it's interesting to see the same objection of, of the invisible gardener being turned back on naturalism.
0: Right. And, and, you know, what's good too, Randall is, is, is the, you know, theism 2.0 there, there, there's a lot of interesting back and forth with, with philosophers that I really respect on, you know, you know, maybe classical theism or, or hylomorphic view of metaphysics versus a dualistic view. And I wanted to kind of go into some of those topics, um, do, do you? I remember from our conversations in Edmonton, you classify yourself as a dualist when it comes to consciousness. Um, you know, I remember in my book Meta, Adam took the position, um, or our book Meta, Adam Adam took the position um, that the mind or the conscious self is just the brain, and and reference significant changes or trauma in the brain, you know, really causing changes to the self. And so, what you know, it, how is that not? Problematic, or how is that problematic for you? And, and, and how do you take a view on, on mind that isn't so spooky that it's violating the laws of physics? Yeah, so,
1: um, well, let's start off with, uh, with this idea that the brain, uh, changes in the brain affect the mind. Um, that's certainly true. Now, the pivotal case of that was in 1846, I believe it was, Phineas Gage, Mm-hmm. Uh, a famous case he was working on the railroad uh, he, he was hitting a railroad tie into the ground hit some gunpowder it bl- blasted this tie back up through his chin and up the top of his head uh, you could shine that flashlight if you had one back uh, right through his, his head there's a hole going through it and through his brain and it changed his personality afterwards he was originally a really nice amiable fellow he became irascible and difficult to deal with and and that initiated the, really in some respects the modern study of the brain and its relation to psychology so that you change aspects of the brain, well, you change the mind and you change the person. And so what I hear from you saying from Adam is that he's saying, so this somehow supports a reductive view of the person, of the person and the mind uh, just is a product of the brain or is identical with the brain. And one thing I would just say is, is that that evidence underdetermines that conclusion. In other words, that uh, that evidence is consistent with other interpretations and so, what my interpretation of the evidence is, is a terp- an interpretation that is substance dualist in nature. What that means is that human beings are of two parts or two metaphysical substances. There is a physical body, including the brain, and there is a metaphysical person or soul or mind that is connected to the body and works through the brain. And it's what we call a dualistic interactionism, so that. One of the results of that is, yes, if you impact the brain, you affect the mind's ability to work through the brain, including taking in perceptual content from the environment around it. But that doesn't support naturalism or or I should say reductionism or, or monism or materialism. It is fully consistent with dualism. And I think there are all sorts of other reasons that one would be a dualist, including, as you said, free will. Uh, we were talking about free will. Now, in terms of of violating the laws of physics, uh, well, I don't, I would just say that however the soul or mind acts through the brain, it's not through energy, energy transfer. I think it's just a a de novo, uh, a new protein basic kind of power that's apart from energy transfer. So I don't think that it's mapping onto the laws of physics. So I think it's just mistaken to think it's violating the laws of physics because the the brain or the mind acts through the brain uh, as a different part of the uh, world, but not through the the manipulation of energy. Uh, so that would just be my quick response.
0: Right, and 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 we mentioned this earlier a little bit, Randall. But on on mathematical objects, it is you know this is getting real far out, real quick here. But on your view with dualism, is is are mathematical objects? fictionalist and helpful are they very real in in the mind of God are they are they inherent to reality in, in a in a different ontological order like like maybe mind is what what are your thought what, what do you make of mathematical objects
1: well I think that you are right to kind of qualify this getting way out there in some respects because this is certainly a, an, an issue where Christians and, and theists and others can be all over the map on it um, my own view is to lean toward a divine conceptualism, which you really see, perhaps first being more clearly articulated by uh, St. Augustine in the fourth and fifth centuries. And it's the idea that tries to uh, take the realistic intuition of Platonism and of Aristotelianism, in other words, that there really are universals out there which can be multiply exemplified in concrete particulars. So I don't know if people are all following that, but things like numbers or maybe colors and uh, different properties, propositions would be another one that philosophers talk about, that these abstract concepts can exist out there objectively. But what they try to do, people like Augustine try to do, is to say, but they're not independent of God. They're actually a product of the ratiocination, in a sense, the the thinking of God. They are rooted in God, but because God thinks about them across all possible worlds, they're necessary expressions of God's mind across all possible worlds. And that's a way of capturing what is often the the To go back to the modal intuitions I referred to earlier, the sense that these are necessary entities, that it could not be the case that there is no number one, that whatever way the world would exist, there would always be a number one. Well, you could say, but that's because God thinks those concepts across all possible worlds. So I think that that's a very plausible articulation. I think, um, so I'm not a fictionalist in that sense, or a, a nominalist. I, th- I think this is a challenge for naturalism, right? How do you explain abstract objects? Because the second you do allow for abstract, day, you're pretty far away from just nature as an object of scientific study.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting, Randall, right? Because math is as somewhat—I mean, the why is there something rather than nothing—is is somewhat of a mystical question. But you know, mathematicians and scientists over the centuries have always been mystified at, 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 at wow, how are we discovering these? mathematical facts that aren't even revealed scientific facts until hundreds of years later. And I find that, you know, slightly cool and very far out in metaphysical discussions, but I, you know, that's, I guess what I was getting at is, is it a problem for naturalism that, you know, like the case of the one mathematician, Natarajan who they made that movie about um, um, the man who knew infinity. I don't know if you saw the movie, but just to be able to, yeah, just to be able to reason mathematically. I mean, that's, quite far out um right
1: yeah so i mean here's a here's a fellow as i recall he was working as a clerical officer in india in the early 20th century and he's doing all this high-level mathematics on his own and he's grappling with and eventually his genius is recognized and he goes off to study at oxford to cambridge uh in the 20th century but yeah so the, the the thing being that that mathematics like what a good mathematician is doing is they're discovering aspects of reality right they're actually discovering entities like in the 17th century when imaginary numbers were discovered there was actually a discovery they weren't invented they were actually discovered as another aspect of reality kind of like saying well we've discovered that there is a a planet beyond um Uranus or Neptune or something, right? There's something objectively else out there. Well, in the same way, we discovered, somebody discovered imaginary numbers. And that's another aspect of reality. But it's not a physical aspect of reality. It's it's something else. It's mental or it's abstract. And it and it actually has properties and qualities of its own. And it's extraordinary that, that great mathematicians, they can rationally intuit aspects of this reality and then reason through it. Uh, so actually, I did have a chapter in my debate book with Sheber, Uh, where I argue that the mathematical nature of the universe and our ability to intuit knowledge about it does support theism over naturalism. So I do think there are powerful arguments there.
0: Right. And I and I would agree, uh, Randall, that it's interesting, um, at least from a naturalism 2.0 perspective, the mathematical, you know, to intuit truth about reality, not directly from nature is is very interesting i think to cultivate either the naturalism 2.0 or even uh, for me i think it's frankly problematic in naturalism 1.0 but but to me it's interesting to see how maybe the 2.0 naturalism would would sort of you know take that on so yeah, yeah. i would
1: just like like people to keep an open mind uh, you know there's this old story i tell my students about the procrestian bed And so the story is in ancient Greek mythology that Procrustes uh, had this little inn beside this busy road and people would come and stay at it at night. Uh, And he always wanted to make sure they fit the beds perfectly. So if they were too short, then when they got into the bed at night, he'd come into their room in the middle of the night and he'd stretch them out. So they fit the bed perfectly. And if they were a little too large for the bed and their limbs were hanging out, then he would come in with a meat cleaver and he would chop their limbs off. So they always fit the bed perfectly. And that very disturbing story is a salutary reminder to us that a Procrustean bed is when you take a particular interpretation of reality or a model or a paradigm and you try to make everything fit with it, like a square peg fitting into a round hole. And at times, reality doesn't fit our models. Maybe reality is much richer than our models will allow. And I think, for example, that is the case with naturalism, that they do often have a Procrustean bed that they're trying to fit all the data into. And the better thing to recognize is that let the data critique your model rather than try to fit the data into your model or in some cases just deny that the data even exists
0: yeah exactly i, I this idea of epistemological humility, Randall is a big you know part of my endeavor with this podcast is just you know philosophically and and empirically really bring it i mean i I want to be moved by the best theological atheological philosophical arguments and i, I want to be moved towards truth wherever that is, and so I think that's incredibly important um, so let's maybe talk about some theological uh, debate within the church <laughs> um, one thing I'm seeing um, interestingly um, is this idea of well these these differing ideas um, among scholars and and the church on um, the idea of God, um, the the divine simplicity idea of God versus, you know, maybe a a, a more personal view of, of God as another being, which I think is problematic. And then, you know, kind of an open theism, you know, what do you see going on there, Randall? And maybe can you help define those things um, and maybe chat on your views?
1: Well, let me... Um Uh, Rather than just talk about simplicity, I'll embed that with a a bigger conversation. And that's the conversation over something called classical theism. Now, the term classical theism is a relatively modern term. It dates from the 20th century. It was coined by a a fellow named Charles Hartshorn. But Hartshorn coined this term classical theism to refer to a particular model of thinking about God, which was really developed by ancient Greek philosophers Uh, So people like Aristotle with his concept of the prime mover and uh, Plato with his concept of the form of the good and even the the stoic concept of the Logos. And and some of these concepts were kind of melded together by Christians in the early centuries of the church, and they were put together to provide a model to think about God. And the challenge has always been that the model uh, appears to be quite different in certain respects from the way God appears to be described in scripture. So, for example, God in scripture appears to exist in time, to interact with us in time, to have emotional changes, to gain in knowledge, to have regrets. God appears very human-like in some respects within scripture. Uh, But the model of classical theism is a model that says God is, first of all, the the creator of everything and sustainer of everything, but is himself unaffected by anything because he is outside of time. He's not in time. That he's impassable, so he does not suffer or undergo emotional changes of state, which would follow from being outside time. Uh, he's also immutable. He does not change in any way. Um, and he's metaphysically simple, uh, which is the simplicity you referred to, which means he doesn't have any parts. And in, a, in a more radical sense, that could mean that technically God doesn't have any properties. God is not love, but God is identical with love and so on. So there's a whole challenge of how to explain and articulate this picture in a coherent way. That's one challenge. The bigger challenge, perhaps, is to, to show that the, the model of classical theism can be reconciled with the picture of God that we find in Scripture, of the, this being that interacts in time, that has regrets, that gains in knowledge, that um, uh, has emotions, and so on, and suffers. So, So that has been an ongoing theological project. Now, for and Randall, and yeah. Randall,
0: is is that is that? I mean, to simplify, is that just basically how is the God of the philosophers the God of the Bible? I mean, that, is that just that's break it down? Kind of what you yeah, were that, saying. That,
1: that, that's a great way just to to, to distill it. There, there's a, there was a, a Blaise Pascal in the 17th century. He had a conversion, and he actually wrote a con, the, his conversion experience. Onto a piece of paper and sewed it into the jacket of his his coat, or into his breast of his coat. And um, on the beginning of that, he wrote "fire." And he talked about his charismatic experience. And then he says, uh, "Not the God of the philosophers, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." And so that was a way where Pascal was raising this tension that we have between these two different concepts of God: the God mm-hmm. of Scripture and the God of the philosophers or classical theism.
0: Okay, great. And and your view. um, I mean, how do you struggle with this, and and what what are you seeing? Maybe Catholic philosophers and theologians do, and, and and maybe you know different Christian philosophers and theologians do. What what say you on this? This seems to be a hot topic.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it is. I I mean, I do think that Christians can disagree about classical theism. I think that the the Procrustean bed that I invoked earlier is a warning. So. I think that there are models that are drawn from classical theism which are probably inconsistent or certainly are are not great fits with scripture or with Christian doctrine historically. I also think, however, that we have to be careful about cavalierly tossing uh, classical theistic models of God, which has become popular in the last 30 years. I think very often the rejection of classical theistic models of God is based on something like a caricature. And I'll just give you one example of that because we could go on all day. But here's one example. So yes, in the, in the classic model, God is impassible. God does not suffer. Well, the critique of the last 30 years or so has often been that that means God doesn't care about us. He's not loving. He's not moved. And that's not what classical theists meant at all. Rather, they meant that God is maximally moved by creation because he is purely actualized so that um, he, cannot, he cannot suffer because he's already fully loving and engaged with creation. Uh, and in fact... Uh, a good illustration, a popular illustration that a defense of impassibility would, would give, it would be like this. If you are suffering, do you want a a doctor to climb into bed with you and suffer along with you? Or do you want a doctor that remains bedside and can deal with you compassionately, but not does not himself suffer? Now, Gerald Bray gave that illustration. He's a theologian. And I think that, that he's really illustrating the impulse behind impassibility. So my caution to critics of classical theism would just be not to straw man it and make sure if you are critiquing it, that you're critiquing the strongest versions of it rather than the weakest versions.
0: Right. I I agree, Randall. I think you, you look at maybe a, maybe the polar opposite of God as another being, and then maybe the idea of God as subsistent being of which there is, you know, there is full actualization. And then you look at the Bible actually you know how do all those things square is 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 is, is somewhat of an exercise, right? And so, <laughs> so I appreciate your comments on the matter. Um, on that note, how do you um, how do you handle? You know, you mentioned Dawkins earlier, and some of your you know some of your co-authors. How do you handle? You know, let's say the Old Testament violence, and and then also maybe chat a little bit about some of the reactions you see from the church with maybe a literalistic view or maybe Greg Boyd's kind of work, you know, how, how do you sit with some of the, you know, old Testament narratives and what are you seeing in the church?
1: Wow. That's a, that's a, another huge, problem. <laughs> uh, it's certainly one that I've invested a lot of time in uh, and, and I've invested time in it because I myself have experienced for years, the cognitive dissonance, of the fact that Scripture appears to attribute to God actions uh, which we would, in other contexts, appear to me morally unconscionable. So, for example, God appears to command genocide, uh, and by, when I say genocide, I'm appealing to the United Nations Declaration on Genocide and their official definition from, I think, 1952, which essentially is the uh, pursuit of the destruction of a particular genocidal kind of people. So it could be religiously motivated or culturally motivated or something else. It need not involve killing, but often killing is a paradigm example of genocide. And so you have a apparent genocide being commanded in texts like Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 to 20, where God commands the destruction of, of the um, tribes of the Canaanites. Or you have it in, in uh, 1 Samuel 15, 3, where God commands the destruction of the Amalekites, specifying even the infants. You know, should be killed. And if we had those kinds of actions occurring elsewhere, then, then people, we would call that genocide, and we would say that's morally unconscionable, right? So there is a tension there for Christians. One thing I'd just like to say, uh, because this is a huge topic, but is first of all to say that Christians have all, always wrestled with these texts, and that there are different reading traditions and interpretations of these texts going back to the early church. So people like Origen were adopting. A spiritualized readings of them, uh, where he would try to understand in some sense the Canaanite genocides of, of Joshua could be understood metaphorically also as as the destruction of wickedness or evil in the individual. I, I don't perhaps think much of, of, of uh, Origen's proposal, but I think what I do appreciate is that he's recognizing there's a moral challenge here to the Christian. Another example in the fourth century, Gregory of Nyssa, he uh, explicitly talks about the, the killing Of the firstborn of the Egyptians, and quite explicitly says God didn't do that. God really wouldn't have done that, and so there must be a deeper spiritual meaning for what's going on there. Uh, And so uh, Greg Boyd, you mentioned, he gives one approach kind of from this impulse of looking for different ways to interpret biblical violence, and he tries to interpret it Christocentrically through Jesus and through the idea that Jesus, as bringing the peaceable kingdom, offers us a new way to critique the Old Testament not because the Old Testament is less valuable, but because the Old Testament provides some pictures of God that should be interpreted through Christ, and overall, that's part of our teaching and, teaching and correcting and training and righteousness that Scripture offers us in Second uh, Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. So that's my very quick overview. Um, I just think that we need to have Christian communities that are really willing to recognize that there is a problem and at attention here, and that we can have conversations about it.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's, it's funny, Randall, on this, you know, this idea of epistemological humility in theology, I, I found that just that idea itself, you know, epistemological humility in theology, in philosophy, in, you know, in science, I find that folks that, um, and myself, you know, trying to be open constantly to revision to try to understand the epic that is the New Testament and then how do you reframe that in the Old Testament? I mean, just basically our, like our previous point, how is the God of the philosophers, which I think is valid natural theology that I don't want to get rid of, how do I relate that to the Bible? And then both testaments of the Bible. <laughs> you know, so I think these are, these are great, I think, things to wrestle with within the church. And it's interesting um, how the different traditions are dealing with it. And what I'm excited about, Randall, is just how these are really, I mean, hot topics today amongst the different traditions. And so are you seeing that, in, I mean, in the written work and in your scholarly work? I mean, these types of questions, just they're hot right now.
1: Well, they are. Uh, in terms of biblical violence, uh, one major catalyst to spur it on, frankly, was was the wake of 9-11. Uh, so there were people from within the Christian community, independently of the New Atheists, I'll just say, who are raising the issue of how do we think about the bible and violence in light of, of the kind of violence religiously motivated uh, we see in 9-11 but then the new atheists really hammered it home even more and i re- referred to dawkins earlier as an example of that and I, and I just want to echo what you said andrew that that the fact that we can have these conversations about these questions theologically there's just a richness there i like to give uh, people an illustration that there is a there's a, a quite a well-known play called god on trial which is set in the, the barracks of Auschwitz, and uh, some Jewish men that are facing their imminent death, they decide to put, to place God on trial to see whether he's been faithful with his covenant to Israel, which I think is a very reasonable question under those circumstances. But hmm. so one man stands up and he says, well, you cannot do that. This is impiety to place God on trial. And then another man, he, he stands up, and I, I can't verbatim quote him here, but his essential response is, No, to ask, to dare to ask these questions is a sign of piety. And I think that he's exactly right. Uh, To be Israel, to go back to the origin of the meaning of the word Israel is to strive with God, to wrestle with God. And when we're wrestling with biblical violence or with different models of God and classical theism, and we want to, we're willing to put our necks out a little bit and, and try to find the right answer, even when we're not sure. I think that is a sign of piety. So rather than worry about Getting the wrong answer and getting shot at, I think we should be willing to take up the mantle of Israel and ask these hard questions.
0: Yeah, it's one of my favorite lessons in Job. I mean, I find myself um, having all these difficult questions and then um, you gotta love the response. There's something immensely powerful happening in in that timeless story of Job, (laughs) where we, 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 we wanna ask the questions to, you know, the, the, the creator of the universe, you know, being in goodness itself. And then we remind ourselves that we are not necessity and goodness and being itself, but the contingent and the created. And so it's, um, thanks Randall. So here's, you know, maybe one last question for you, speaking of what's hot in the church and in scholarship right now in theology, what's going on on the, you know, the nature of hell, um, the traditional view, annihilationism, universalism. Um, is this a hot topic right now? And, and and maybe how do you define these things and, and where are your leanings?
1: Wow. That's a, yeah, another, you're getting all the big ones here. <laughs> so in terms of hell, well, this is, first of all, another area where there, there's been a predominant view in the history of the church undoubtedly. And that's the view of eternal conscious torment. And it's the view that there will be a general resurrection of those who are unregenerate or who are outside Christ, and that will result in them uh, so achieving or uh, acquiring an, an immortal body, and then they will suffer eternally, never-ending torment in body and mind. And the first thing that I think we have to be clear when we talk about this, this view, this interpretation of Scripture, this doctrine of eternal conscious torment, is what it is proposing. What it is really proposing is that those who die outside Christ will be tortured forever because the word torture means the punitive infliction of intense pain and suffering. And that's precisely what the doctrine proposes. So the doctrine proposes that God resurrects uh, people that die outside Christ so that they will be tortured maximally forever uh, to an unimaginable degree of intensity. And that's a terrifying picture. So it could be true that that predominant view in the history of the church could be true, but there are other alternatives. Uh, One other alternative that dates back at least to the second, third centuries appears to have been held by Irenaeus, certainly Irenaeus being a theologian in the late 200s, Arnobius being a a theologian about a century later. uh, And that's the view of annihilationism. So it's a view that there is a resurrection of the unregenerate or, or those outside Christ, but it results ultimately in the cessation of their existence that the judgment results in them not existing anymore. Uh, and I think there's a lot of scriptural support for that as well, admittedly, is for the first view. Now, the third view of universalism is the view that while there is a hell, there is a period of judgment after death. That period of judgment doesn't go on forever. And it's for the purpose of the restoration of individuals so that through Christ, ultimately everybody will be reconciled to God after a period of, of suffering, perhaps penitential suffering. And again, there are texts that support the universalist position. So I think in all of these cases, there's an argument to be made theologically, biblically, philosophically, and practically for these different views. And I think that Christians should have charity with one another on this question, and we should not allow it to be a deal breaker. And we should especially not allow anybody to reject faith because they cannot reconcile themselves with one model, such as the idea that God would indeed resurrect people to suffer tortured.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Randall. And, and I remember in your writing, I think you, you describe yourself as an annihilationist in Ben, but, but a hopeful universalist. Can, can you explain that for the listeners?
1: Yes. So I, I would say that I, I do believe that the most likely alternative is the annihilationist position. Uh, that there will be a general resurrection to judgment, and that will result in cessation of those who refuse to be reconciled to God in Christ. But because I recognize that there is an argument to be made for the universalist position, I believe that everybody ought to hope that that position is the true one. And I would invoke as conservative and traditional theologian as J.I. Packer, who's a well-known conservative Mm -hmm. Anglican theologian. I would invoke him as support here because um, he himself said, if you want to see people damned, there's something wrong with you. And I think he's right. If you want to see people damned, there's something wrong with you. But if you hope that everybody could ultimately be reconciled to God in Christ, even, you know, the worst sinners that you can imagine, um, then that is a good sign, I think, that, that we are coming to recognize the extent of God's grace in our own lives. That, that as while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and God loved us, so we could have that same hope for all people.
0: Wow. Randall, the nature of hell, divine simplicity, abstract objects, consciousness, morality, and free will all in about an hour. I think we did it. We did a nice job here. Record time. Anything you think we else could have piled on in that conversation? <laughs> oh
1: yeah. We could just talk about world religions and yeah. eschatology, the end of everything and a few
0: other things. Uh, exactly. No, that was, uh, that was fantastic. Randall, thank you again for your time and, uh, and jumping onto the podcast. Your um, you know, your interest in my and Adam's project, and we'd love to have you uh, back on the podcast in the near future, or maybe uh, out here in the Midwest on some projects live, or maybe back in Edmonton, uh, hopefully when it's warmer next time.
1: Yeah, you bet, sounds good, Andrew, thanks a lot.
0: Thanks again, Randall.
1: Okay, take
0: care. Bye-bye.